Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and this morning our guest is uh, Dr. Mark Lewis. He is the author of The Biology of Desire, which is a really good book. It's about why addiction is not a disease. Um, we're going to bring him on in just a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is uh, hamsnetwork.org. We are free of charge, a lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Mark Lewis, is with us right now. How are you doing this morning, Mark? Very well, thanks. Although it's afternoon here in the Netherlands. It is afternoon. It is an international call. We're very high-tech here, going all across the ocean, like a transatlantic mm-hmm. cable. Um, uh, Mark, I love this book. It's uh, It's got a lot of great information about neurobiology and you know the thing with NIDA, NIDA is always trying to push this agenda of how evil drugs are and how much it is a disease and how your mind is hijacked. And I, I love the way that you talk about how the mind, you know, is powerful, how it heals itself, and all the different factors going on in this this tug of war between the drug and the drug user and the, trying to, you know, you know, getting mired in addiction and pulling themselves out. Um, what what made you decide to write this book? Tell me a little bit. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess, uh, uh, well, I guess I'll start the story with the last book, The Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, which uh, came out about, uh, what, three years ago, three and a half years ago. And um, <clears throat> it um, it told the story of my own addiction through most of my 20s, I had a pretty serious addiction to opiate drugs, which I finally kicked around the age of 30. Um, and in that book, I combined the neuroscience of addiction, which I've been studying for some time, with the story, the actual moment-to-moment experience of addiction, and tried to really uh, intertwine those two um, narratives, those, those two trajectories into one, to show how important brain processes are in addiction, and yet not to characterize addiction as a disease, the fact that brain processes underlie everything we do. And I don't see the brain changes in addiction as necessarily uh, um, casting addiction as a, as, a, as a disease or pathology or anything else. And that was my story, and that was about me. And it was about addiction, and it was about the brain and addiction. But then it seemed important to, um, to take another look from the perspective of other people's stories. So the new book... Um, explores in some detail the lives of five different people who um, were addicted to uh, heroin, uh, methamphetamine, um, pharmaceutical opiates, and one alcoholic, and one person with a serious eating disorder, and uh, and to um, explore their experience in a lot of detail, but also to continue to talk about what's going on in the brain while addiction emerges, when it arises, when it becomes embedded and, and very difficult to shake, and then and then changes some more when people grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things, you know, when I read things by, say, NIDA or Norovoca or the disease model, it's, 
They speak as though drugs change the brain and everything else in the brain stays static and nothing else changes. But that's not true. It's not just uh, one change process going on with drugs, is it? No, not at all. Um, I've been studying neuroscience for about the last 15 years. I'm actually a professor in developmental psychology, but I switched my work over to neuroscience, um, partly because there is so much brain change going on through child and adolescent development and even in adult development that it seemed to me that the place to go to look in detail at at how development works was to look at the brain. And then the idea of the brain as a static organ that, you know, somehow finds it at a certain setting and then stays there just doesn't make any sense at all. The brain is constantly changing. So, yeah, um, (laughs) drugs change the brain, and so does falling in love, so does becoming a sports fan or a jihadist or learning to play a musical instrument or learning to drive a taxi in London. I mean, these are all sort of, in a way, obvious and common sense examples of brain change, but we just don't talk about them that way very often, and we certainly don't talk about those kinds of brain changes as diseases. We talk about it in terms of learning and development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just maturity itself changes the brain, and uh, you know, I've seen a lot of research when people get older, they don't like to take so many risks, and they don't care so much for playing with drugs and things. They, they change their attitudes as people mature. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, as people get older, of course, there are brain changes, and some of them are not entirely pleasant. Um, and some of them aren't too bad. Obviously, our memory changes. Uh, those changes you start to notice in the 40s and 50s. Um, some capacity for rapid processing even for, of new information changes. There's a lot of things that change. But, uh, yeah, whenever there's behavior change, change in attitudes, change in the way you live your life, you can assume that there are underlying brain changes that are going on at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, tell us a little bit more in detail uh, about how drugs get people addicted. I mean, what is going on in the brain? You know, how do people pass from recreational use into addictive use? And then how do they get out of it? Yeah, well, that's obviously a, a complicated, multifaceted question. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like the work that you do, Ken. I mean, the, your your um, hands, your, your site and um, organization supports the way people deal with their addiction in a variety of ways, whether it's through harm reduction or controlled use, moderation or complete abstinence. And indeed, people get better in a lot of different ways. But I guess to start at the beginning, um, people start to explore drugs and uh, other intoxicants, substances, but also behaviors that can become addictive, like gambling and sex and porn and uh, even Internet games and all the rest of it. Um, And why do we do these things? Well, because they're exciting or they're fun or they take us out of ourselves. And often if we have a... Uh, disposition if we're a little bit depressive or anxious um, and we're not completely comfortable in our world, whether it's because of historical reasons, because of childhood reasons, or because of um, some aspects of our environment that aren't very pleasant, then those attractions become more and more important. And, you know, they work. I mean, whether you're, you're, um, you know, smoking pot or smoking crack or drinking too much or overeating, uh, you're changing the way you feel. 
And that in itself becomes a goal. And after a while, it becomes a goal that sort of sucks in a lot of the variance so that other goals become less uh, concerning, less important, uh, uh, relatively speaking. And then, um, of course, with all learning, there are brain changes, uh, as I said. So the kind of learning, I think, that goes on when people become addicted is sort of an accelerated learning process. It's, it's, it's self-propelling, it's self-reinforcing. Um, and there's a lot of level at which we can understand. I don't know how much biology to get into here, but there's, uh, when we pursue attractive rewards, whether they're substances or whether they're pizza or whether it's falling in love, um, there's a neurotransmitter dopamine that gets sucked up from the brain, from the midbrain uh, into the, what's called the striatum, which is responsible for, for goal pursuit. And uh, then the, um, the thinking about or, or perceiving stimuli that are associated with that, with that goal start to trigger dopamine release more, more and more automatically as time goes by. And then you get a kind of self-empowering system which, which draws your attention and focuses your attention on that thing which you are attracted to. And the more attractive the thing is, the more often the cycle is going to repeat and the more predictably it's going to repeat. And then, of course, the other problem in addiction is that there's less uh, of that kind of chemical uh, um, direct direction towards other goals, whether it's playing with your dog or whether it's, um, you know, uh, reading a good book and these things become less important in, in relation to the goal that starts to occupy more and more space in your attentional radar. And that's really how addiction, I think, gets launched, how it starts and how it becomes a, a deeply ingrained habit. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the recovery phase, it's, there's a lot of other sorts of changes. People often reach a stage where they become really disenchanted with their addiction. I think that has to happen in order for people to want to change it. And uh, mm -hmm. that causes them to, to want to pursue other goals, such as feeling a sense of wholesomeness and well-being that extends from day to day without having to do stuff that is compromising or uh, has unfortunate side effects or, you know, gets you in trouble with other people. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, that, that's an important thing. You have to become disenchanted with uh, your addiction to want to change it. You know, the, there's some addictions like cigarette smoking. You know, up until the 1960s, you know, people were very addicted to cigarettes, but they didn't even think that it was an addiction. They called it a habit. They didn't even think it was a bad thing to do until right. they started getting these reports about all this lung cancer. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, wait, we have to change this. And people were like, this is really hard. And they kind of realized it was an addiction. But, you know, that's an important yeah. point. If people are not disenchanted, uh, they don't see a reason to change their behaviors. Yeah, that's right. And that's, you know, it's it's partly a personal thing, but it's also a cultural thing. There are many cultures in which um, taking addictive substances is perfectly fine. You can do it until the day you die. Nobody <laughs> nobody looks twice. Um, and as you say, that was the case with smoking in our own culture for many years, right? It wasn't really considered to be an aberration of any kind. But now mm -hmm. we consider drug now we consider, you know, drug taking and even smoking to be uh, in some ways antisocial. And so those, those are among the factors that cause us to, to um, think twice about, about how good this thing is and whether it's worth the trouble. 
Mm-hmm. And, and we're very, very aware of health concerns now as well. So we know that it's, it's not particularly healthy to take large amounts of alcohol or large amounts of cocaine, whatever it is, uh, over extended periods. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go into yeah. some, some more of the, uh, the detail, the neuroscientific detail in just a minute. First, I want to ask you, uh, what do you think of the hijacked brain model? Yeah, well, I, I I think it's it's you know it's an oversimplification. Um, I understand why people use that kind of language, Nora Volko and people at NIDA and other uh, other people. Um, who came up with the phrase? Do you recall? I, I um, uh, it was years Moyers ago. in a it was a PBS documentary. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was Bill Moyers, you're right, it was. And, and it, yeah, it's a pretty catchy phrase, hijacked brain, the brain gets hijacked. So after that, I mean, of course, you're not really responsible for anything because once you've been hijacked, you're just a victim. So it's got unfortunate consequences for uh, for the addict and for all those issues of empowerment and self-direction and self-reflection that are actually extremely helpful for getting out of addiction. But but besides that, all all that really means is that um, your brain has become involved in a, a habit which is which is learned deeply and which becomes uh, self reinforcing and self perpetuating at a rate that outruns other habits, competing habits. Well, you want to call that hijacked? I mean, hijacked implies that you know there's a hijacker. That there's someone else out there who did this to you, or some force, or some entity. And for one thing, we know that drug addiction doesn't look any different from gambling addiction in the brain. They look exactly the same. The same parts light up at different stages in the process. Same with addiction to, to, to sex and porn and everything else. So to say that drugs hijack the brain is wrong in so many ways. It's wrong scientifically. It's wrong socially. It doesn't really make very much sense when you think, when you think about it closely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, also the epidemiological data is really against that when you look at the way most people overcome their addictions on their own as they get older. Um, you know, if, the, if the drugs really hijack the brain, you just keep getting worse and die, and that's really rare. Almost everybody yeah. overcomes an addiction eventually. Yeah, that, that's uh, right. And, you know, sorry? No, go ahead. Yeah, and... and uh, Maya Salovitz wrote a very nice uh, piece on that. It was in rehabs.com uh, a few months ago. But it's true. The um, NISARC, various stages of NISARC and other epidemiological studies show that most people recover. And indeed, most people recover without treatment. So, And it's related to age and it's related to time. So as you say, people grow out of their addictions. It seems to be... Uh, in many ways, a growth process that has to do with aging, changing your horizons, changing your perspectives, and realizing that there's other things to do in life. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, I think it's very much, in that sense, a developmental phenomenon, and that works completely antithetical to the notion of a hijacked brain or you know an endpoint in brain development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's another problem there with the disease language, with the disease metaphor, is when they, people get better on their own, they call it spontaneous remission. But right. quitting an addiction is very different than, say, having a cold go away. 
you know, if you catch a yeah. cold, it goes away on its own. You, it doesn't really matter too much what you do. You can relieve some right. symptoms. That's about it. When people quit right. an addiction, it just doesn't go away on its own. People have have to work like hell. It's a hard work yeah. to overcome yeah. it. But yeah. you know, so uh, you know, the whole disease metaphor is really it, it's really inaccurate and misleading. I find. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's a certain we, we know there's a certain percentage of addicts that are are in deeper trouble than um, than most addicts that that are really sunk in deep and. Often they have lost a lot of the um, supports in their lives, um, community, friends, uh, um, prosperity, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. they can really get stuck in a serious dead end um, that might be consistent Mm -hmm. with with that idea, the kind of idea of a terminal terminal illness or a terminal problem. But it's terminal then for a lot of reasons, a lot of which are social and financial and and all the rest of it. And, of course, the idea of, a, of a addiction as a disease um, has become um, integrated, let's say, with, with 12-step philosophy and the way people talk about it in the 12-step movement, that, you know, this is going to kill you, and if you don't stop right now completely, you, know, you just keep going, and there's... Uh, there's no place to go but down, and, but that's mm-hmm. often you know it's but but those communities are often the uh, are often the places where the most severe addicts end up, and for the majority of addicts, that's just not an appropriate way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, even right. with the people, even with the people with severe problems, often if you can fix some of those psychological, financial, uh, and social problems that the uh, addicted person has, uh, it gives them, you know, a a boost up so that they can start overcoming their addiction and working to overcome it. But it still takes work, of course, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It still takes work. But, but yeah, that notion of support and community and and other forms of support is is a very, very important thing. part of the process. But yeah, it, it, it usually does take a lot of work. I mean, some people do, they, they do kind of quit it almost magically. It, it happens. It happens, uh, uh, it happens a fair bit. You hear stories all the time about someone who just stopped. They woke up one day and they said, enough of this shit. I've had it and they're done. But that, that wasn't the case for me in my addiction. I had to work pretty hard to get out of it. And I know that a lot of people do as well. Well, I was a severely addicted cigarette smoker, and although I did succeed on quitting on my first quit attempt, uh, there was a huge amount of effort that went into that attempt. And, you know, I did months of planning ahead of time, and then, you know, uh, 40 days of cutting back and taking Chantix and all kinds of things. And I I think that's the reason I was successful on the first quit, because there was so much work that preceded it. And then even afterwards, right. staying stopped. For me, I had withdrawal for a full year from cigarettes afterwards. How long had you smoked? Uh, 35 years, and I was a very heavy smoker. That's a long time. So they, yep, they yep, say, yep. well, I mean, um, Gene Heyman uh, actually has gathered some uh, very nice uh, statistics and shown that uh, quitting cigarettes is, is one of the hardest things. I think actually 30 years is the median uh, time frame from 
becoming addicted to cigarettes to, to quitting. So at the 50th percentile, it takes 30 years. It sounds like you were pretty close to that yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, now, I want to go yeah. in. Yeah, go ahead, Terry. I want I want to go into some more detail about the actual brain structures, and we we can get into all the gritty details here. I mean, so many yeah. people they've already heard all these terms about nucleus accumbens and striatum and dopamine right. and serotonin and you know yeah. prefrontal cortex. You know, these, these are terms everybody's throwing around now. Um, I'm going to take yeah. us back in time a little bit to the 1950s. And the 1950s, people thought people felt they discovered a pleasure center in the brain, and they used to, they had these stories about you know you could electrically stimulate your pleasure center, and this was going to be the wave of the future. But uh, tell us about the pleasure center and what what's really going on there, and what we know about this today. Right. Yeah. In the 50s and 60s, um, I think it was a fellow named Old who found that electrical stimulation. Uh, somewhere around the middle of the brain. They didn't know exactly where. It could have been the hypothalamus, could have been around the amygdala, or, f- or further forward to the uh, nucleus accumbens. It- it's pretty hard to tell the difference in, in animals, and especially in rats, because their brains are so small. But-, but they found that stimulation in these areas seemed to be immensely reinforcing. And, uh, and rats, for example, would-, would-, would work. They would you know, press a lever, do whatever they had to do in order to get more electrical jolts to that region uh, delivered through electrodes uh, in their skulls, uh, through their skulls. And so, yeah, so the idea of the pleasure center was born. And for many, many years, and even still today, the, uh, the striatum has been considered the pleasure center. And then the nucleus accumbens, as you say, the nucleus accumbens is part of the striatum. It's in the southern half, the southern pole of the striatum, the, what's called the ventral striatum. Uh, the striatum is a kind of a big, complicated structure, and different areas of the striatum have somewhat different functions in motivating behavior. Well, the, the southern part, the nucleus accumbens, seems to be responsible for motivating impulsive behavior. So what does that mean? It means if somebody says, hey, you want to get high? Say, yeah, let's get high. Okay, that's the impulsive part. And you're, you're eager, you're attracted. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it feels rewarding and you're ready to do something. You're ready to put away some plans or get in your car or, you know, whatever you have to do, get some money um, by uh, holy or unholy means in order to, to accomplish that goal. So that, that's, your, um, that's your accumbens and that's your ventral striatum. But nowadays, many of us don't see it as a pleasure center at all. Rather than imagining that it is responsible for the pleasure that you're seeking, uh, we think of the, the accumbens and the ventral striatum as being responsible for the desire, the craving, the motivation, the impulse, uh, the attraction. So that's part of what's, that's a real change, sea change in how we see some of these, these motivational structures. And Kent Barrage is a very important neuroscientist um, who has shown that in that area of the brain, there's a big difference between the feeling of liking something and the feeling of wanting something. And uh, as, as far as the striatum is concerned, and the striatum actually uses dopamine as fuel in large, in large part, uh, a lot more of the striatum seems to be devoted to wanting than to liking, which means that to the extent the striatum is involved in addiction, and, and, and you know, if you're a rat wanting to stimulate this triatum, you're not stimulating pleasure, you're stimulating desire. 
that makes you say, yeah, I want it, yeah, I want it, oh, yeah, I really want it, I want it, I want it. And that wanting is partially independent of pleasure. And, and you know that from being a smoker. People smoke long after they feel, you know, very little satisfaction from and maybe the first cigarette of the day feels good, but you're not getting a whole lot of pleasure from it. But the wanting doesn't go away. So, so that whole idea of the pleasure center is being replaced by the idea of a center for attraction, motivation, uh, desire. And my book emphasizes that a lot, the circuitry of desire. Well, the title of the book is The Biology of Desire. Mm-hmm. So we have desire, we have uh, reward, and then we have behaviors become automatic. And what, what part of the brain deals with behaviors becoming automatic? And how is that different from being behaviors just being desirable or rewarded? Yeah, that, that's a very good point. So uh, as I say, the southern pole of the striatum, the ventral striatum, the nucleus that comes in, uh, seems to be involved in impulsive goal-seeking. And so when you're, when you're being motivated and that part of is being activated, you, you're, you're invested in a reward. You're looking forward to it. I'm going to do this. It's going to feel great. But over time, and you pursue the same thing over and over again, whether it's coke or heroin or booze or, or whatever it is, or gambling, um, it, activation moves northward in the striatum. It moves upward to, from the more ventral lower part to the more dorsal upper part of the striatum. And as it does that, uh, impulsive behavior uh, gives way to compulsive behavior, which is to say that the motivation is less... Um, in terms of looking forward to a reward and more in terms of, I just have to do it. I just really feel like, I just got to do it, got to do it, sorry, just got to do it. And that's a different kind of motivation. It's still motivation, but it's a different kind. It's very automatic, uh, which isn't to say that you're forced to do it. You're not forced to do it. That's where people make a mistake, and that's where the hijack brain idea really, you know, really sinks in its teeth. Um, Feeling compulsive about something doesn't mean you have to do it. It just means that you feel like doing it, and you don't really know why. Well, mm-hmm. if you feel compelled to, you know, uh, I mean, obsessive compulsive disorder, you might feel compelled to wash your hands 50 times a day, and and that's a drag. Uh, but you can stop. People stop, and there's all kinds of ways of stopping. If you feel compelled to go downstairs and check the lights, or check the garbage, or make sure you lock the door. So it's, you can say, nah, I'm not going to bother. I know it's locked. I don't have to do this. It's the same thing with compulsions to take drugs and other addictions. They, are, uh, uh, they have a, a lot of motivational punch to them, but they, um, they're not, it's not the same as fatalism. It doesn't mean that you are required to do it. It's just a certain kind of feeling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's still, it's still driven by dopamine. It's a very interesting and complex system that the wiring from the dopamine center in the midbrain, it starts off going to the ventral striatum, but as, you, as the behavior becomes more and more learned and more, you do it more and more over and over again, uh, the, 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 the actual nerve fibers from, from the midbrain start to wind up to the more northern parts of the striatum, the dorsal striatum, and that's where the behavior becomes more automatic, more uh, compulsive. So, mm-hmm. so that's an important mm-hmm. change. And when that happens, definitely addiction becomes more um, more difficult. It becomes more difficult to stop because you don't really know why you're doing it, and not doing it becomes uncomfortable. 
there's a certain amount of anxiety in saying, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, that's not so easy anymore because, you know, it's like a motor response that's turned on and, you know, it's, it's, you have to turn it off. You have to go and turn it off and that requires some effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, and, you know, this is something I've wanted to write about in a little bit of detail. But, you know, when you start using a substance or engaging in a, a behavior like gambling or whatever it might be, you know, at first, you know, it's always you're making a conscious choice to use the substance. You make an effort to use the yeah. substance. But at a certain point, it just switches over and you're actually, you know, using the substance becomes the automatic thing, the default value. And now yeah. not using is the thing that takes the effort. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when, that's when the activation has moved northward, as I say, along this triatum to this other region. Um, but it's very interesting. There's uh, one, of the, one of the, well, perhaps the most respected neuroscientist in the world who knows about, who studies these things talks about the optimization of behavior as something which is perfectly normal and natural. If you do something mm-hmm. enough time, mm-hmm. it becomes automatic. It just does. It's the way mm-hmm. the brain works, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's more efficient that way. You don't want to have to stop and think about everything you do. It's something that you do over and over and over again uh, should become automatic so you can think about other things and, and use the brain to, to more to its, uh, to its greater potential. Mm-hmm. But in addiction... Optimization has been has been villainized, and you know, and in a way, rightly so, because it is it is certainly troublesome that you have to now exert this effort to turn off this habitual response pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an important point for choice theory because initially you're making the choice to use the drug, but then as yeah. it becomes automatic. You have to make the choice to not use. So it's always quitting or controlling then becomes the choice yeah. rather than yeah. using. Yeah, yeah. I just I just wrote something about that. It's a very interesting question uh, where, where choice comes in and how to think about choice. Um, you, you know, you could... Um, you could characterize the debate as being between addiction or compulsion on the one hand and choice on the other hand. And the trouble with that is it ends up being sort of like biology versus uh, free will. Well, mm-hmm. it, never, it, it never stops being biological. Everything we do is biological. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, we, we are always, in a sense, thinking about where we want to go next and making making some efforts to decide and, and to direct our, our behavior uh, uh, one way or another. So I, I think of it like, okay, so you're driving along and you're kind of in a rush and the light turns orange or yellow, depending on where you live in front of you. And there's a compulsion to keep going, maybe to step on the gas and go through it. But then your prefrontal cortex says, well, no, that's not a good idea. Let's not do that. Might get a ticket, might, you know, uh, might be uh, uh, dangerous. Um, And so right there, there's a, there is, an, uh, an antagonistic relation between a compulsive act and, and a, a self-controlling act. It's right there. It mm. happens all the time. It happens, I don't know, a hundred times a day, usually in very minor ways. Uh, 
you know, you, you might be riding in an elevator. If you like, you know, check in and make sure your, your, your zipper's pulled up. Well, no, better not do that right now. So there's, there's so many little examples, but we don't think of them because they're mundane and trivial. Um, and and uh, it's like, um, but with addiction, it's a big deal. People think it's either the biology forcing you to do this or else it's willpower, which allows you to choose your own way. And in fact, it's not one or the other. It's both. It's in mm-hmm. biology, it's striatum interacting with the prefrontal cortex. In, in, in life, the feelings of just wanting to plunge ahead with something or do something just because you feel like doing it versus taking a moment to think about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, you know, so that's, that's interesting. I think that's the way to think about choice, which is a little bit more uh, graded than it's either choice or it's not. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. Well, choice, I mean, choice is involved in every volitional action. You know, involuntary actions don't have choice, but every volitional action has choice involved in it in some way or other. Uh, one interesting yeah. example occurred to me just while you were talking is, uh, you know, if you're an American and you're used to driving on the right side of the road and you go to Britain and you drive yeah. on the other side and suddenly there's this right. car coming at you and you automatically turn the wrong direction <laughs> into crashing into them because your reaction, you know, is yeah. automatically to turn the, yeah. the other direction. Right. Yeah, I have, right. So, yeah. yeah we, Sorry, go on. Your conscious mind would, if you were slowed down, your conscious mind would tell you to make the right choice, but the automatic behaviors take over and they make make the wrong choice when you're in the the extreme situation. Yeah, yeah. Or another traffic example is you're driving along the highway and suddenly you see all these brake lights going on in front of you and you feel like like jamming on the brakes, right? It's it's, mm-hmm. it's compulsive, it's automatic. That's that's the that's the response that's coming out. It's coming straight out. Um, but then you, you also reflect for a moment. Say, if I if I jam on the brakes, the guy behind me might you know run into me. So people. Uh, so as soon as volition is involved, as soon as you're the least bit thoughtful, then there's there's a compromise between compulsion and reflection. And that compromise, I think that's what, where we spend a lot of our time. It, it's rarely mm-hmm. free choice. Free choice is probably a misnomer. Choice is not free. Mm-hmm. There's an awful strength at work, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that there's no choice. Choice is still there. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a little bit more of a compromise than we might want to think. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I want to get back to the brain some more now. Um, now, as we're moving from recreational use into addictive use, what's going on with the prefrontal cortex? Um, yeah, well, uh, Nora Volkov is a fine neuroscientist, and she's done a lot of work showing how some of the uh, prefrontal regions uh, become less activated as addiction proceeds. So what, what that means is that in the prefrontal cortex, as you know, is involved in um, reflection, uh, uh, comparing, perspective taking, decision making, judgment, all that good cognitive stuff that you're so proud of. Um, and, and indeed, when addiction gets more severe, uh, 
you get more action in the striatum when you're when when the, when the drug or drink is suddenly available. You get a, you get a spike in the striatum, but you don't get a corresponding activation in the prefrontal cortex that you maybe used to have um, a few years ago. So why does that happen? Well, there's some kind of uh, a, a disjunct or um, uh, a, a, lo- a loss, what they call a loss of functional connectivity between the striatum and, and these regions of the prefrontal cortex when you are in this addictive mode or when the addictive substance is available. So what does that mean? Well, it means that it's a, it's a complicated business, and I don't think we understand it fully, but it seems like the striatum is sending signals to the prefrontal cortex whenever it gets activated because the brain is supposed to involve both some a de- degree of reflection and judgment as well as some kind of motivation and push. They're supposed to go together. So all these circuits are there and available for this crosstalk. But the circuits start to become used less and less and less as the addiction becomes more habitual. And when circuits get used less, there's an actual, there's an actual um, uh, um, uh, weakening or the reduction in, in, the, in the synaptic, in the, in the actual fibers that connect the two regions. So what you see is a loss of a certain number of synapses, and they call that loss of gray matter density. Well, gray matter is mm-hmm. good stuff, so that sounds pretty nasty. Loss of gray matter, oh my God, you know, that, sounds, that sounds like a disease, doesn't it? But in mm-hmm. fact... In fact, all it really is is pruning. And pruning, synaptic pruning, the loss of synapses, is a really important part of learning. So there's a whole different take on that one. In in fact, between the age of um, middle childhood and adulthood, you prune about a third of the synapses in the cortex. A huge amount of pruning is going on. So development and becoming expert, becoming a more efficient thinker, which is what we do from childhood into adolescence into adulthood, actually depends more on pruning than it does on the growth of synapses. Well, Mm -hmm. then, so what's going on in addiction? There seems to be some pruning in the networks connecting these regions, the prefrontal cortex and the striatum, which really just means in a way, in another way of thinking about it, that you are functioning in a more efficient way. You're doing what you mm-hmm. do more automatically. You don't need as much control. You're, you're, you're saying, I'm not going to think about this. I don't need to reflect on this. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go out and get another hit of this or have another, get a bottle of vodka or whatever it is that you do. It may not be a very good thing socially, morally, societally speaking, but as far as your brain is concerned, it's a pretty efficient way to conduct this business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, that's kind of a big answer. Oh, that, that's... Good. And, uh, okay, one thing I'm just going to point out really quickly is that we're talking about a reduction in number of synapses. It's not a, the cells aren't gone. There's not, not right. cell death, not reduction in number of cells, but reduction in number of exactly. connections between them. Exactly. Um, and it was an important thing. Well, you, you, synapses grow and they, and they dissipate. They grow and they, they grow out. You get new synaptic spines like the branches on a tree in the springtime. And then, you know, they, they cut back. They get pruned. They, they uh, use them less and they disappear. So synapses are extremely plastic. All, all of the brain's plasticity is in the synapses. 
And when people think about addiction or loss of gray matter volume or gray matter density, they often mistakenly think about cell death. Cell death is pretty rare. You're going to get cell death if you drink a bottle and a half of vodka probably one night. You might get some cell death if you really, you know, overdo it. Or if you take certain, there are certain drugs that are actually neurotoxic. But people can take heroin for 20, 30 years without killing brain cells. They're changing the synaptic patterns, but they're not necessarily killing the brain cells if they don't take too much and if they, uh, if their use is, is, well, yeah, if they take stuff that's not cut with other things, the heroin is not killing their brain cells. It's just changing synaptic patterns. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back to the, the whole reward system uh, and all the systems we've been talking about. They're there for survival mechanisms i mean you know we go back to the to the caveman days the, the primitive uh, days and you know they I, I remember they said it was uh the four f's you either flee you feast or you fuck you know you have to know do you run away do you eat it or do you reproduce you know you have to make decisions very quickly fighting fighting is the fourth one right yes fighting is the fourth one fighting yeah for- Fight, flee, fight, flee, fuck, or what was the other one? Feast. Feast. Are you going to eat it? Yeah. These are all survival mechanisms, and that's why the learning mechanism works this way, and, you know, and that sends up, you know, messages to the prefrontal cortex, so next time you'll be more efficient. When you encounter this situation, you'll you'll react more quickly. You'll make better judgments. And I think I'm wondering how much study there's also been. You know, if you're a heroin addict um, in the United States, you have to do a lot of work to get your heroin. You it costs a lot of money. Um, It's not readily available. You can't go in the drugstore and buy it. You have to. It's a huge job. It's a work to be a heroin addict. Um, yeah. And is there any study about how the you know the prefrontal cortex works to get more efficient at getting you know your habit your your heroin of uh, when you're addicted? Yeah, I guess I guess that's that's it. Is that the prefrontal cortex becomes uh, involved in the planning, the strategies to get what you need, just like it would if you were trying to you know uh, make it with with a, a romantic partner or uh, in some other way trying to achieve other forms of reward or, or trying to get the better of somebody with one of the other Fs, the fighting one, sometimes also involves a great deal of strategy. So the prefrontal cortex is great for strategizing. And, and as mm-hmm. addiction proceeds, you could say the prefrontal cortex is less involved in worrying about whether this is a good thing or not or whether or not I should be doing this or I'm going to earn some social approbation and become more involved in simply strategizing. I, I knew a guy who, God, he had an incredibly complex strategies. Uh, he was a lawyer and, and he's a very good one. Um, when he wanted to get his drugs, he had this network of doctors and prescriptions and double and triple doctoring worked out so that he could um, uh, get what he wanted. And it, it was a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of strategy. And uh, that very efficient prefrontal cortex of his was completely involved in, in doing this successfully. Mm-hmm. So yeah, effort and strategy and all those all those things are required. 
Okay, one more uh, part of the brain that we didn't talk about yet is the orbitofrontal. And what does that do and how is that involved? Yeah, that's a very important part also when we're thinking about this stuff. Um, so the orbitofrontal cortex is the very bottom of the prefrontal cortex, the part that's just, just above the eyes. Um, and uh, uh, that's what I call orbital frontal. That's the orbit, the eyes. And... Um, well, yeah, so in the prefrontal cortex, like the further north you go to the more dorsal regions, the more you're getting into the areas responsible for reflection and judgment and perspective uh, taking and so forth. And when you get down to the southern regions, like the orbital frontal cortex, that's much more involved in emotional, um, let's just call it emotional thinking, um, recognizing the reward value of, of something. Do I want it? Is it nice? Is it attractive? Or is it repellent? Is it nasty? Is it, you know, something? Is it aversive? The orbital frontal cortex is very much involved in making those emotional value judgments. Uh, so it, it it gets closely connected to the striatum. It's actually more closely involved with the limb. It's sort of like the bridge between the limbic system and and the striatum in particular, which is kind of paralimbic, and the prefrontal cortex. It's like a bridge. It does, it's very involved in motivation, but it also sends messages upward to the more northern parts of the prefrontal cortex. It says, come on, gang, let's get in on, let's get in on this and figure out how to, how to get more of this, if it's a good thing, or less of this, if it's a bad thing. So mm-hmm. it pairs up with the and the amygdala. And I, I call, in my book, I call these three players the emotional core or the mo- motivational core of the brain. They're all very much involved in motivation. And they all kind of drive the cortex uh, into uh, let's do this, let's start thinking about how to how to you know how to do this more effectively, more quickly, more efficiently, more you know more assuredly, and so on and so forth. Sorry, go on. Yeah, that's I mean that's really uh, important for the survival of mammals. And you know of uh, early humans, uh, humans today as well. But you know, being able to make decisions really quickly rather than mm-hmm. really rationally. You know, some yeah. of these early cognitive science computer models of the brain we had. You know, they would uh, sit there and think and think and think and think forever and go through every right. possible. You know, and this this you know there was a great uh, model they had about uh, the the robot had to had to. Uh, find a new battery and replace its battery before uh, the bomb went off and blew the robot up. And, you know, the robot would sit there and think and think of every possibility, you know, and before it started to move and the bomb would go off and blow it up. You know, you have to make decisions quickly to survive. So the whole emotional thing is very good for survival. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the whole emotion system is like that quick and dirty way to get stuff done that you need to get done without, you know, without wasting time thinking about it. And, and yes, the, the striatum and the orbital frontal cortex are very much involved in that. So that's that's why it's it's uh, that's why like I call it the motivational core. It's got to act fast. And you're right, it acts fa- a lot faster than reasoning, reflection, and judgment, which require comparison. It's like Kahneman System One and System Two, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. System One is just, just do it, do what feels right, and uh, System Two 
the more reflective system is like, wait a minute, was that really the right thing to do? Or, or let me think about this for for a minute now. Mm-hmm. And, and if we have a lot, if we have some time on our hands, it's great to use system two, a more reflective system. Uh, but where, as you say, life, important life goals and survival uh, issues are 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 at stake. Uh, that's when you want to act fast and you know shoot now, think later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, our 19th century models were all about praising reason and, you know, condemning emotion. But, you know, in reality, uh, we found out with the cognitive science, with the computer models, if you reason about everything, you don't survive. Right, yeah. And it's very hard for cognitive, it's very hard for computational modeling to model the emotion system. People are, are getting better and better at doing so. But it's a very different enterprise than, than what you described before, the purely cognitive, algorithmic, you know, set of uh, mm-hmm. rules spinning off one, one leading to the next, which is time-consuming. Mm-hmm. And, and now they have these uh, neural network architectures, which are, work in a very different way. They work uh, mm-hmm. in spontaneous parallel processing rather than this, these long sequences of, uh, of algorithms, one leading to the next. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I think the next, yeah, it's it's got a ways to go yet. I think there's one yeah. more thing that uh, we need to cover that's important, and that is uh, what happens when people quit addiction. What happens in recovery from addiction to the brain? What's going on, and what changes take place? Yeah, well, that's that's a really big issue. Um, you know, in the book, all this heady stuff about brain processes. Um, no pun intended. I I try to make it a lot more palatable and accessible and fun even by weaving it into the stories of these my five addicts whose whose stories I tell I tell in great detail and they're I think they're pretty dramatic stories of people falling into addiction, struggling with it and really getting messed up by it and then finally finding their way out. Each of these five five people uh, successfully recovered. We use that word recovered. It's not my favorite word, but that's that's the word we've got. Um, and and I'm I am very interested in what's going on in their brains at that time. So one thing that's going on is well, what Barbara Aerosmith, like Young, and, and uh, sometimes um, uh, Norman Doidge call the uh, the double-edged sword of neuroplasticity. Uh, neuroplasticity is a I mean, we obviously need that for learning, for everything. Um, but plasticity is what gets you into addiction. This, this, this thing, this habit, this uh, um, enterprise that starts off looking pretty shady ends up being the only game in town. That's a lot of brain change, neuroplasticity involved in, in learning that habit, becoming uh, enraptured and, and embedded in it. But then neuroplasticity is also the way out. Um, your brain is not stuck in the new configuration. And as things become more boring, uh, more repellent, more aversive, uh, and so forth, you say, well, I'm going to have to change this. And you start working harder to do so, as you and I have discussed. And so each of these five people um, starts working on it. And one way or another, they, they manage. The research, there's not a whole lot of research about the, um, the neural correlates of recovery. But there are some studies, and one of my favorites, I, I, do, um, I do review it in the book, um, is uh, 
by it came out in PLOS uh, last year, 2013, I guess. Um, and the senior author was a guy named Garib, a very respected neuroscientist. And what he showed, what the, that team showed, is that you get this reduction in gray matter in certain regions of the prefrontal cortex, uh, which imply that the addictive impulse is becoming more efficient and it's not pulling in the, the prefrontal cortex to, let's say, make that decision in a rational way. It's just going to go about, just do it. Um, so you get loss of gray matter in some regions. Well, what happens when these people um, become abstinent? And what they show is that from uh, six or eight months to a year of abstinence, uh, gray matter volume increases in these regions. And not only does it increase, but it actually goes beyond the baseline that is uh, the, average, um, the average degree of gray matter density shown by people who have never been addicted. So let's call that a baseline. Well, they fell below that baseline as their addiction went from months to years and years and years. But after less than a year of abstinence, they grow back synapses in these regions, and then they move on. They keep growing synapses in not exactly the same areas, but closely related areas which suggests that they are really developing new skills, new ways to think about what they're doing, new ways to self-reflect and self-monitor. Um, in fact, their brains are becoming better than they were before the addiction. And I just think mm -hmm. that's a fascinating way to you know, look at recovery. This, is, this mm -hmm. is not just recovery. This is not just going back to where you were before. This is ongoing development. You're, be, you're becoming a more, in a way, uh, a more refined person with more self-awareness, more self-discipline than you ever needed to have before. Mm -hmm. And this kind so, of puts, yeah. a, puts a lie to the whole idea of once an addict, always an addict, and, you know, an addict is just waiting for that next fix, no matter if he's been abstinent for 30 years, he's just waiting for the next drink and the next shot of heroin. No, it's not exactly. that way at all. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the habit... The habitness of addiction, so to speak, is, is certainly it's a huge factor, but it's very much reinforced by doing it day to day use. You keep doing it, well, sure, you keep you keep uh, perpetuating the habit, strengthening it, but you stop doing it for a while. Habits change, you know. You you always take this route to work. You always take this particular set uh, set of turns, and then one day you say, well, well wait a minute, what happens if I if I don't take the freeway but I do this, take that street instead, and for first week or two, it feels strange and it, has, it involves a lot of effort. After that, it gets easier and easier. And before long, that's the habit, right? So habits mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. and the brain changes with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think about cigarettes anymore. And, you know, yeah. during, the, during the first year I was quitting, you know, that was the only thing I was thinking about all the time. But now, um, what is yeah. it, seven, eight years later? I don't think about uh -huh. cigarettes anymore. Yeah, what a relief, huh? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you're freeing up a lot of territory. Oh, absolutely. A lot of, a lot of neural territory gets freed up, and that, that's the beauty of recovery. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a wonderful thing moving on and saying, okay, well, I don't really have to do this, and I found a way not to do it, and so there's a lot of stuff I can do, and let's let's get going. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up on the end of the hour now. This hour went pretty fast. Um, I want to yeah, really yeah. recommend this book very, very highly. It's really 
readable. As Mark was saying, um, uh, the there are stories that illustrate all the neuroscientific points of the story, which makes it very. Uh, I mean. They illustrate all the scientific points with the real-life stories of real people, and it makes it very approachable, very readable, very easy to understand. I'm really going to recommend uh, some of my professors to use this as a textbook in their class because, you know, the the, the stuff that's out there isn't very good, to tell you the truth, and it's not clearly understandable, and it doesn't cover a lot of important areas. I thought this is, and it's totally up to date. It's a um, Completely up to date on the neuroscience. It is. Uh, I was just amazingly impressed with this book. It will be on sale next week. Um, it is July fourteenth. Yep. Uh, you can That's order right. it right now. Pre order on Amazon, either Kindle or uh, paperback or no hardcover. I think. Um, but it's yeah, in paper and Kindle. So yep. it's, it's so for sale now. Yep. It's, I, I I think they're sending it now, but they say the official release date is is the fourteenth of July. Mm-hmm. So that's just that's just a few days from now. It's about five days from now. So yeah, it's it's pretty much available. Okay, I really want to thank you for being our guest today. Is there anything you want to leave us with? No, Ken, that was a great great uh, conversation, and I'm really glad you're interested in some of the neural details as well as I know you are in the uh, the life and the experiential details of addiction and recovery and. Um, no, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate your support and enthusiasm, and uh, let's keep on uh, keeping on. Okay. We'll see you all with our next show next week, and until then, goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Nice talking to you.